And the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. From the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It wasn't in the plans originally, not really. All the other nations had one, but then look at how well it had gone for them. Plus, Israel was to be different. They weren't supposed to look like the other nations. That was exactly the point. So when the people began to ask God to give them one, a king, that is, their requests were met with a grand divine eye roll. A point for us, a king to govern us like the other nations, the elders of Israel said to Samuel. You might think that their speaking the phrase, like the other nations, would once uttered cause them to rethink and reevaluate their desires and requests, but no. God had established judges for Israel, not kings. Continually throughout the book of Judges sounds the refrain, God raised up judges for Israel. Judges to lead the people, to arbitrate conflicts, to govern and administrate, but not to rule. Israel was to have judges to lead, but not kings to rule. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord alone, was king. There could be no other. No king but the Lord no sovereign but Yahweh. And yet amidst the pressures and anxieties of living among other nations, amidst the complications and threats of geopolitical forces and empires near and far, Israel began making some political calculations. Judges would not do. This old-fashioned, decentralized, locally administered system of governance just couldn't stand up to the new, the progressive, the, lo- the, the powerful, monarchical forces and formations among Israel's neighbors. I love how the French theologian Jacques Ellul put it. He said, from a human standpoint, Israel feels that monarchy would be an organizational advance that it is both more efficient and more secure, that it allows for political planning in a way the system of judges simply could not. From the standpoint of political efficiency, Israel was undoubtedly right. But of course, this is to forget the basic principle of living as God's people, that faithfulness always trumps effectiveness. Yet Israel wishes to be like the other nations. Did God really say judges? The perennial serpent's whispers reverberate in the minds of Israel's elders. You will not surely fall prey to idolatry and the lust for domination, to perpetual war and even more perpetual pain. For God knows that when you appoint kings for yourself, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing power and rule. And so Israel tastes the poison fruit of human kingship, reaches for that rule which belonged to God alone. The Lord warns the people, you don't know what you ask for. You don't know what this means. A king will tax you heavily. He will conscript your sons into his endless wars. 
he will not cease accumulating power until he completely devastates the nation. But God's people are relentless. They demand a king. And finally, the Lord permits. He hands Israel over to her desires, and sorrow fills the heart of God. They have rejected me from being king over them, says the Lord. What follows in the biblical narrative in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you may well know, is a story of pain and tragedy and even terror as Israel raises up king after king to rule God's people. At their very best, kings like David rule in ambiguity, pursuing noble goals, aspiring to fidelity to God, all the while engaged in lies and adultery and murder and greed. And at their worst, kings rule in cruelty and violence and oppression and idolatry. The cycles of monarchical failure descend into further and further darkness as the story goes on until finally the Lord appoints another kingdom, first Assyria, then Babylon, to come in and conquer God's people, dissolving their kingdom and sending them into exile. These foreign kingdoms, invasion and occupation and deportation and exile are bad, but One wonders if these are actually a mercy compared to the terror of life under Israel's kings. The Lord dismantles Israel's kingdom for her own sake. By the time Jesus enters on the scene, the dream of an Israelite king and kingdom is a faded past memory. Israel had been allowed to return from exile to the rubble of her capital city long ago. But amidst the various attempts to rebuild and restructure Jerusalem and the nation, it became clear that Israel was always still to live under another empire's thumb. Over the centuries, Israel would change hands several times, first being ruled by Persians, then Greeks, then Romans. Every new imperial occupation brought new challenges, some more burdensome than others. And at times, the rule of pagan kings became simply too unbearable. Longings for a return to the Davidic kingship of old were channeled into the militant aspirations of nationalists and zealots. Rebellions broke out. So-called messiahs led campaigns to try to free Israel from foreign control, to reclaim the temple and the throne, to instantiate the Davidic rule of God's anointed. And all of them were suppressed. Many were executed. Some perhaps even with a mocking sign over their heads, the king of the Jews, or at least he thought he was. In the time of Jesus, the air of Judea was thick with messianic longings for a king and disappointments over failed claims to the throne and anxious hopes that maybe the next Messiah would really be the one the one true king. All this to say, the drama of scripture in so many ways is a drama of kings and kingdoms. 
a Game of Thrones, so to speak, but one far more captivating and infinitely more tragic than any HBO creation, because in this story, every usurpation of a throne, every abuse of power, every act of violence and vengeance is also an assault on the one good king who rules in love and justice and mercy and grace. In other words, it was never supposed to be this way. Every year, on this last Sunday in ordinary time, as we prepare to enter into the season of Advent, we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. Advent, don't forget, is about a king and a kingdom. The change in liturgical color to royal purple reminds us of this. We await a king. In Advent, we look backwards to the arrival of the kingdom as the king of kings becomes incarnate and inaugurates the kingdom of God with his appearance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, proclaims that first Advent prophet, John the Baptist. And... In Advent, we also look forward to the consummation of that kingdom, when the king will return in glory to judge his kingdom and establish his rule forever. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come, says the second Advent prophet, John the seer. But today, this morning, On this feast of Christ the King, the scriptures direct our gaze to a slightly different place from which to contemplate the kingly rule of Christ. In many ways, a strange place, not where we might think to look to see Jesus ruling as king, and certainly not where anyone in his day thought a king belonged. Our gospel reading from St. Luke this morning directs us to the throne of Christ, which is a cross. St. Luke has spent much of his gospel recounting Jesus' teachings and enactments of the kingdom of God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has been directing attention to God's kingdom. It's the central theme of his message. He tells parables and teaches about what the kingdom of God is is like. He heals and performs miracles, all in order to demonstrate indeed how the kingdom of God is taking root in this world. He sends out his disciples to proclaim throughout the region that the kingdom of God has arrived. All this has, of course, provoked strong reactions from Jesus' hearers. His disciples eager to hear that they are part of a movement to restore the kingdom of Israel, are filled with both anticipation, for their salvation is at hand, and disappointment, as Jesus repeatedly shows their expectations to be off-based and misdirected. Israel's teachers and temple authorities respond first in antagonism and questioning, and then later with the power of law and order charging him with blasphemy, bringing him before the Roman authorities, saying, we found this man perverting our nation, they cry out, saying that he is Christ a king. Romans are themselves quite 
anxious about Jesus' king and kingdom rhetoric. And so when the Jewish authorities hand Jesus over for punishment, they are more than happy to terminate this source of political and social threat. This controversy around Jesus' kingship coalesces, of course, in the drama of Christ's passion. All the forces of earthly kingdoms converge to stamp out the spreading wildfire of the kingdom of God by executing its spark and source, its proclaimed king. Our reading from the Gospel of St. Luke comes from the climactic moments of this drama as Jesus is finally crucified. The whole of Christ's trial and punishment has been one long mockery of his claim to be king. The soldiers and religious leaders alike insult and mock him for his kingly pretensions. They clothe him with a royal robe. They crown him with a crown of thorns. They offer him up sour wine, a kind of parodic act of the servant offering the king his cup. They mock the king. They mock the very idea of another kingdom because Caesar alone is king. Rome's sovereignty is undivided and unchallenged. But for the reader of Luke's gospel, of course, what is intended as mockery and parody is shown to be utterly, utterly true. In this moment, Christ really is king. What in the soldiers' mouths is irony and mockery, the believer hears as the gospel truth. Every insult is unintended praise. Every mocking bow at this dying man's feet is a true gesture of recognition of Jesus' authority. Every action of humiliation affects Christ's glorification. Christ is lifted high on the cross and so enthroned as king. The crucifixion is a coronation. The crucified one reigns from the cross. Now, of course, there are few in the text of Luke's gospel who understand this reality in the moment. The rulers mock, the crowds sneer, the disciples all scatter. For both Jesus' beloved and his enemies, this is the end. The cross is the end. The end of a good messianic run at the throne. The end of a hope-for kingdom. But it is the end. The cross, in other words, declares the king is dead. But there is one who understands the truth in all of this. A most unexpected one. It's the criminal. While all the rest mock or cheer or weep, the criminal on Jesus' side makes his confession. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a truly remarkable moment. All throughout the Gospels, we've seen time after time people getting Jesus' mission and the kingdom completely wrong. Everyone is projecting onto Jesus their hopes and desires and fantasies about what their desired king and kingdom will look like and where they will end up in that kingdom. They cannot seem to hear Jesus' clear words about how the kingdom comes. 
It must come, he says, by means of the cross. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Even those closest to Jesus, like Peter, cannot help but see Jesus through the grid of their own messianic fantasies. God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But not the criminal. The criminal understands. At the moment Jesus is lifted up in crucifixion, he is made king. The cross is not the end of the kingdom, but the beginning. And so now the criminal begs Jesus at this moment, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal understands. But how does he know this? Why is the crucified criminal one of the few who truly understands Jesus the king? The short answer is that the criminal is dispossessed. Dispossessed of any projections and fantasies about what he wants Jesus to be. In this moment, as he hangs on the cross, he is stripped of any prideful calculating about what Jesus' kingship might get for him. It's all over for him. He is divested and relieved of the ideologies of king and kingdoms that have driven this story all along, propelled this game of thrones. This man sees Jesus from the underside of empire. He is not given to illusions about kingdom building and kingdom power and kingdom rule. He's being killed by the kingdom. And in being crushed by this kingdom, alongside Jesus, he sees the one true king, the only real kingdom, which of course is God's. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. My prayer for us this morning is perhaps an unusual one because usually the call of scripture, the claim made on us by scripture is to become like Jesus. And this certainly is always true. But the call this morning is an additional one, I think. It's a bit different. It's to become like the criminal. Become like the criminal which is to say the call is to be dispossessed. Dispossessed of our selfish desires and projections, our self-interested calculations, our fantasies of Jesus, which keep us from seeing him as the king he truly is, the king who rules in self-giving love. The call is to be like the criminal, to be stripped of everything. And so behold only Jesus as he really is, hanging in love on his throne, the cross. The call is to be like the criminal, to be crucified with Christ, which of course is the call of every Christian life, to be crucified with Christ. Christ, so that Christ may live in us. 
and that is a real kingship. So let us worship the king, all glorious above, whose throne is a cross and whose scepter is love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.